Well, thank you so much. It is, a, it is a great blessing to be here, to be able to talk a little bit about um, what God has put on my heart for this conference. I pray that no one leaves here the way that you came. I added in the part, the way that you came. I do hope that we get to leave, but not like we came in here. I, I believe that every person in this room, if you claim to be a believer, you have a role to play in international missions. God has a place for you in his plan for the world. But what is that? So I'll just say up front, I'm not one of those guys that thinks everybody should pack up, sell the farm, and go to the other side of the world. But I do think if you are a believer, you have a role to play. I want to demonstrate that a little bit through the time that we have together both tonight and then tomorrow and on the Lord's Day. And I just want to kind of begin ramping into that and just explain it this way. For the purpose of our time together this weekend, I want us to look into some places in the Scripture to see how God actually brings that to pass as far as piercing the darkness that we're talking about. How does that? We pray for God to make a difference in the world. We pray for the unreached peoples to be reached, for places that have not known a church, a missionary, a Jesus film, a Bible. We pray for that to find fruition and for God to have his name known among these peoples. But how does that happen? And he does that by calling people like you to go to the world and make a difference. From conferences like this, there's probably some people who were nervous about coming for fear God might call them to missions or that I might be that guy who twists your arm to make you go to the field. I'm not that guy. I think if God has called you to be a housewife here in this town, you cannot glorify him more by being martyred in Somalia. I think the highest and best use of your life is to do what he has called you to do in the place where he calls you to do it. But what falls to each one of us is to ask, what is my role in God's plan for the world? So we were missionaries in Ecuador for a number of years. I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. You may hear that in my accent a little bit as I go on. It'll come out more or less along the way. But we, we served in a local church there. We went to New Orleans for my master's work. We went from New Orleans to Costa Rica for language school. And from Costa Rica, we went to Ecuador, and we served there for a number of years. We came back to the States, and I began serving at Southern Seminary in 2003. We've been there about 14 years now. The bio information has changed a little bit. This year, we're celebrating 40 years, and we have six grandchildren, uh, four of whom are with their parents, my son and daughter-in-law, who are missionaries in Ecuador now. And it's a blessing to see our kids continue uh, what God had put in our own heart, as my Uncle Jim and Aunt Carolyn have that blessing in their life as well. Their son and daughter-in-law continue um, to serve the Lord in missions. When I first came back, and I would speak at mission conferences, or I would be talking in missions classes, people would come to me at break time, or they would seek me out in my office, and they would say, you know, I I, I think I'm called to missions. Uh, I'm talking with the mission agency, and they're, they're asking me about my missionary call. What is that? Where do I find that in the Bible? How do I articulate what is a missionary call? Where do we see that? I mean, we don't even see the word missionary in the Bible, much less a missionary call. Is this even a biblical thing? Is this something that we've invented? Where do we see it in 
in church history? Where, what are we seeing in theology? What do our big missionary heroes, what do they think about a missionary call? So I began to do all this research and try to figure it out. And people would come up and they'd say, what if I feel called to missions, but my spouse does not or vice versa? And people would say, you know, I, I think I'm called, but I, I don't know the exact place where I'm called yet or the exact people group. Is that still a call? And so answering these questions over and over and over, sort of out of self-defense, I wrote this book called The Missionary Call to find your place in God's plan for the world. So I could say to people, read this, and then we'll get together and talk about it later on and go to the next level. But what happened is I began to research the scriptures to see how God has called people, and then I would begin to explain to other people what that looks like. That would begin to resonate with their life as well. I talked to missionaries all over the world as God gave me the opportunity to travel. And because of what I do at Southern and because of what I do with reaching and teaching, I'm able to get around the world a good bit. And I get to talk to a lot of missionaries. And I've listened to them, asking them, tell me about your call to missions. How did that happen? And sometimes you'll have a husband and a wife that grew up in the same town, went to the same elementary school, same high school, went to the same church, went to the same college sometimes, were called out of the same church, but I've never met two people that had the exact same call at the exact same time. You can have a conference of thousands of pastors and ask each one of them to come up to the podium and explain their call to ministry, but you wouldn't hear the same two experiences. And it's difficult to tell somebody else what a call is when they don't have one. Trust me, when you're trying to tell your father-in-law why you're taking his daughter and grandchildren to another country and he can't relate to a missionary call, it's, it's frustrating. And it's like trying to explain to an eight-year-old the difference between liking someone and loving someone and being in love with someone. He likes his friend Timmy that he plays baseball with and he loves his mom, but to be in love, he can't really understand that yet. And while all of you love the Lord, I'm sure, to understand what this call is to go to the, another part of the world, to say goodbye to everything here, give away everything you have, sell it, pack it up, and go to the other side of the world. Some people, you struggle with what exactly does that look like? So I just want us to go to the scriptures and in the times that we have together over the weekend and the several hours that we have tonight, no, no, we have several hours tonight, but the time we do have tonight I do want us to consider what it might look like when God calls somebody and says, go. And then let's just begin to ask ourselves over the weekend whether God might be calling you. Because I, I honestly believe that he's calling somebody here tonight. It may not be to go to the other side of the world. It might be to share the gospel with someone across the street rather than across the world. It may be to share the gospel with somebody across the breakfast table. Sometimes that's the most difficult path to cross. But what does it look like? I'm just going to walk through a passage that perhaps is very familiar to each one of you, and it's where God calls Abram in Genesis 3. And you might think that's very bizarre to go to the Old Testament to talk about missions. But the truth is, the Bible is about missions from the very beginning all the way through. The, people ask me sometimes, is there a biblical basis for missions? And I usually say no to catch them off guard. And I tell them there's a missiological basis for the whole Bible. 
Why did God even give us his word? We're going to look at that this weekend while we're together. But when we look at when God calls someone to leave where they are and go away, we see that God calls Abram in chapter 12, the first few verses. We'll look at the first five verses of chapter 12 of Genesis. And it might seem that when we look at the scriptures that that his call comes to him here. Really, Stephen tells us later on in the book of Acts that his call came to him prior to this time while he was still back in Ur. But here, Genesis 12, verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Abram was called by God as a 75-year-old man. And you might think he's, he's kind of on in years now. He's an old guy, but he's still about a third of his dad's age at this point when God first calls him to go. And Derek Kidner reminds us that Abraham was in a very dangerous place, perhaps like some of us here. He said that Abram was middle-aged, prosperous, settled, and thoroughly pagan. He didn't live among people who love and honor the Lord, but many of us can relate to him being middle-aged, prosperous, and settled. And he had three ties to sever, his country, his birthplace and kindred, and his father's house. Now, as much as we hate change, we hate it more when we get older. And Abram would have to leave the security of his home city in a post-Babel world. You remember the world in which we were living at that time? When Abram is called to go out, he's going out into a world, to a world that had rebelled against God. God said, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. And the world was so pagan and sinful that God destroyed the human race with the exception of one man because he was a holy man and saved his family. And as soon as the flood was over and he got off the boat, he got drunk and things started all over again. God said, I know that there is only sin in your heart, wickedness in your heart continually. And he said, multiply again. Fill the earth, have dominion over it. But instead of doing so, they gathered together and they started building this huge tower. If he ever sends another flood, our feet won't even get wet. We'll be at the top of this tower. And God came down and he divided them all by languages, according to different family groups. He didn't divide mom and dad and the kiddos, but by languages and dispersed them around the world. And Abram is called right after that, right after the table of nations and the Tower of Babel, Genesis 12, God calls Abram to go to leave behind everything at 75 years old and go out. Now, if you're 25 years old and you're looking for something new and interesting to do, 
That's still a big step, to walk away from everything you've ever known, from your homeland, from your kindred, and go out into an unknown world. And one of the most amazing things to me throughout the life of Abraham is that he did it. Abram has a life pattern of prompt obedience, and so does every true believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's one of the things that characterizes a believer. In fact, when we look at Abram's life, when God gave him the commandment to circumcise his household, the Bible says, on that very day, Genesis 17, 23, when he told Abram to do with Hagar as Sarah had said, and you remember, that was his son that he was sending away with Hagar Genesis 21, verse 14, when God told him to do that, it says, early the next morning. And when God told him to sacrifice Isaac, Genesis 22, 3, the Bible says, early the next morning. God came to Abram as he's sitting in a very comfortable life there in Ur, and he calls him to get up and go. He said, where, Lord? He said, I'll tell you when you get there. Just go. John Wesley said, by this precept, he was tried whether he loved God better than he loved his native soil and his dearest friends and whether he could willingly leave all to go along with God. What if God called you to this night? What if he were to say to you during the course of this weekend, here's a big step to take? Could it be like Abram? that God is testing whether we love him more than we love our comfort zone. I honestly believe he's calling some of you this weekend. And it could be to go. If the Lord ever tells me to go again, he will not have to say it twice. The second to last thing I pray every single day is what is it that's not being done that ought to be done that I could do? And if it were done, it would result in greater extension of the kingdom and greater glory to your name. And I know that sounds convoluted, but I pray that every day. What is it that's not being done that ought to be done that I can do? And if it were done, it would result in greater extension of your kingdom and greater glory to your name. And then I think about it for a few minutes. And then the last thing I pray is, I will go anywhere, anytime, and do anything you say. And as much as I'm constantly coming aware, becoming aware of what needs to be done in the world, I usually feel a little guilty when I go to sleep in the same zip code where I woke up. There is so much that needs to be done in the world. What if he were to say to you this weekend, go or sell everything you have and send those who will go, those who can go? What if he were to say that? Now, I, again, I'm not one of those who wants to twist your arm behind your back and make you go. If I do that, I've got to go with you and keep twisting it to keep you there. And depending on where you go, I may not want to go and do that. But whatever the Lord calls you to do, that's how you can best glorify him. Maybe he's calling you to break a pattern in your life this weekend so he can get serious in your life. Maybe there's a relationship to leave behind, a habit to stop. He could be calling you to take the gospel locally, globally. And you say, okay, you know, I'm here this weekend because I have sensed that God was doing something in my life. I I know that he has been speaking to me some in my quiet time, 
through people I've talked to, just through my prayer time. But where? What does he want me to do? What we see in the life of Abram is that God doesn't call us to a vacuum. Whenever he calls us from someplace, he's calling us to someplace. Whenever he calls us to get up and go, he will show us where. But Abram had to go by faith because it says in 12.1b, I will show you. He was to get up and go to this place and to go to the land that the Lord would show him. The, the Bible says in Hebrews 11.8, by faith, Abram, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. It gets a little awkward when you get to the airport. You know, you've got to at least say where you think you're going. But Abram was willing to go out to wherever the Lord would show him. Derek Kidner again said, Abraham must exchange the known for the unknown and find his reward in what he could not live to see, and that was a great nation. And again, going back to John Wesley, he said, before, he was being tested to see whether he loved God more than his own life. Then now he says, by this precept, he was tried whether he could trust God farther than he saw him. For he must leave his country to go to a land that God would show him. Many people who first feel called to missions and they come and talk to me, either in my seminary office or a place where I'm speaking, and they say, brother, you know, I think I'm, I'm called, but... I'm not really sure where. I mean, I love internationals. I love languages. I love uh, praying for the nations. And I would love to live in another country and serve the people there and extend the kingdom. And I'm willing to make whatever sacrifice necessary. I just wish God would call me. And I think, okay, well, let's back up and talk about that a little, just a little bit more. And they said, but I don't know exactly where. And I said, okay, well, let's say that you did know where. Maybe he's calling you to Brazil. Would you feel good about that? And they said, well, yeah, I mean, at least I could put up a country on my call, and I would feel like that's more of a call. I say, okay, he's calling you to, to Brazil. Brazil's a big country. It's as big as the continental United States. It just goes this way instead of this way. But you say, so, so I say, which city in Brazil? And then you're back to being worried about whether you've got a call or not. And I say, okay, but now let's say that you know he's calling you to Sao Paulo. You say, okay, good. I feel good about my call again. Okay, he's calling you to Sao Paulo, but what neighborhood are you supposed to go and live in? Well, now you get nervous again. I say, okay, well, here's the neighborhood. This will be a good neighborhood for you. Which house is yours? Which bedroom is yours? What wall are you going to put your bed up against? How specific does your call have to be before you feel like I know that God has called me? Can, could you be like Abraham and just say, I, I just know that he's called me and I'm going. Can you trust God with your zip code? Could you just let him decide? All I know right now is, Lord, whatever's left of me, I want it to be yours. And just delight yourself in the Lord and trust that he'll give you the desire of your heart and he'll work out all the details. The step that God is calling you to make may require unbelievable faith because you can't see exactly where that is going to be. You remember Joshua. I mean, he had the one job after Moses died. He's supposed to lead the children of Israel across the Jordan River and conquer the land. Israel wasn't a big place. It was about the same size then as it is now, more or less. You could drive from the top to the bottom in about three hours or so. One side to the other in about an hour and a half. Some of you could do that probably a lot quicker, but that's about how long it ought to take. And he had to act on faith. Why? Because the Jordan River, the very first step that he was to take, 
was flooded. They couldn't get across. And you remember when they went, when the priest's feet were going into the Jordan River, the water parted. It didn't work like it did for Moses. He couldn't stand there and, and hold up his staff and all the water parts so they can walk across. It wasn't until they stepped their foot in the river. The African impala, if you watch a lot of nature documentaries like I do, I'm fascinated by that animal because when they run, they can jump 10 feet high and they can cover 30 feet when they jump. But any zoo can keep impalas in an enclosure with just a three-foot wall because an impala will not jump if he can't see where his feet are going to land. And oftentimes, I feel like we in churches are just impalas. We're willing to go and serve the Lord wherever he wants us to go as long as he will lay it out for us in advance. I have students sometimes. I have church members that I talk to, and they say, I'm just going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to sit here with my legal pad until God tells me his will for my life. And I say, brother, we're going to come in there and find a skeleton sitting in front of a legal pad. That's not how God reveals his will to us. We discover his will by saying no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. We walk through a room and we live a season of life in this room. And then we notice another door. We sense God wants us to go through that door. We go through it and we're into another part of God's kingdom and God's part of his plan for our life. We live there for a while. Then we notice another door. And we go through all these series of doors until one day we realize this is what I was made to do. This is who I am. And it dawns on you, if you had not been faithful to walk through that first door, you never would have seen this next door and the next door and the next door to get you to this place. Can you trust the Lord when you don't know what that last room is going to be? You're still going to go through this first door. You're still going to say yes to this. Some things have to be believed to be seen. We have to be willing to jump whether we can see where we'll land or not. He tells Abram a command that has two parts, and there's a promise included that also has two parts. He tells him to go, and he tells him to go by faith. But then God says, and I will bless you. In verse 2 of chapter 12, it says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. God mentions bless, blessing, blessed five times in three verses. He says, I will bless you. And this blessing turns out to be numerical, influential, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. He says, I will make of you a great nation. What could this possibly mean to a man who is this old with no children, married to a barren woman? God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Genesis 17, 2, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. In 17, 5, he says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, great in numbers, great in significance, and great in influence. What the tower builders, back when we talked about the Tower of Babel, what they were trying to establish for themselves, you remember they said, we will make a great name for ourselves, and they didn't accomplish it. God does that for Abraham without him doing anything except trusting that God would do it. And the truth is, 
God will bless you too. That promise to Abram, God is still giving to people today. Go, go by faith, and I will bless you. But he also tells Abram in verse 3 that I will bless others through you. There's a so that. It's kind of a purpose clause. He said, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, singular, by the way, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is not for his personal self-aggrandizement or for his personal wealth building. This is so that the peoples of the world will be blessed. Now, if we were to do a word study and go back to the original language and all of the other, you know that when there's the, the table of nations in Genesis 10 and the Tower of, of Babel, Genesis 10 and 11, we have all of these peoples. Your Bible may translate that families. Your Bible may translate that nations. Your Bible may translate that clans. But however your Bible translates that in Genesis 12, it uses the same translation because it's the same word showing up again. When he says, in you, all of those will be blessed. The Old Testament is not a book about God's blessing for the Jews. It's not just about the Jews. God has always had a missionary heartbeat. From Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve had first fallen into sin, they have no hope. They're totally cut off. They're undone. They're hiding they're not looking for God. They're hiding from God. And God comes to them and he preaches to them, if you will, good news. And the theologians call that the Proto-Evangelion, Genesis 3.15, where he tells the serpent, man and woman are overhearing that, says that the seed of this woman will destroy the work of the serpent. And there was hope. We call it the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelion. You think, well, I don't see much gospel in that. Yes, you do need the light of the New Testament shining on it to really see it. But that is the first hope given to hopeless people. And who is the missionary? Who is the preacher? God is the one who comes and tells them that. God calls Abram to go, and he says, through you, I'm going to bless just the 12 tribes of Jacob. No, I'm going to bless all the clans, peoples, nations, families, however your Bible translates the word, God says, they will all be blessed through you. Any missions book that you read, and I have to, I get to read a lot of missions books and textbooks um, because that's just kind of what I do. But they all include this passage, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, in a missiological basis for the Bible, why God gave us the Bible in a biblical basis of missions, what we are to draw from the Bible to apply to the nations. What is that? God is going to bless the nations. He has a missionary heartbeat, and he calls Abram to be a part of that. In other words, through those of you that are here in this room right now, I don't know how you're to be involved in missions. I know that you are, and that God will bless the nations through you. J.C. Ryle, I was reading him just this morning. He said, I suspect there are a lot of people, I'm paraphrasing in his book, Holiness, if you've ever read that, he said, I suspect there are a lot of people who live their entire lives as Christians and never realize that they actually blessed anybody. He said, when they get to heaven, they will be surprised to see the people that God used their lives to bless. 
And he said, he makes a statement that he doesn't believe that it's possible for a genuine Christian to live his life in this world, his or her life in this world, and not be a blessing to others. Just doing what God has called you to do. I'm in Ecuador. I'm teaching some pastors, a group of pastors, the four points of the gospel in a, in a presentation that they can use to share the gospel with others and that they could teach in their churches. These were humble men. They had no training. They had no access to theological education. They were banana country farmers, as we call them. And they also, in each one of their little villages, they were the, the encargado, the one in charge of the little church. And so I thought, well, I'll just, I'll give them these four points of the gospel. God is perfectly holy. Mankind is sinful. Jesus is the answer. You must repent and be born again. And I just unpacked that for about 45 minutes. Two of the pastors prayed to, re to receive Christ. One of them said, brother, I've never heard that before in my life. That was beautiful. And that was sort of an illustration when I did that again, again in Ecuador, but this time up in the mountains, and two other pastors prayed to re receive Christ. On a mission trip, as some of our team members were sharing their testimony just in a casual kind of gathering, several of the people who were present heard the gospel in those testimonies that these were people that we were assuming to be believers. They were assuming themselves to be Christians, members of the church, and et cetera, and came to know the Lord. These team members had no idea that they were there to actually share the gospel with people. They were there for another activity that they were to serve as mission trip members. But just by being them and doing what God had called them to do, others were blessed. In Abram's call, it was distinguishing and selecting. Of all the people that lived in the land of Ur, God called Abram to come out and to go to the place where he was sending them. It was separating and it was dividing. God calls us to separate ourselves from our native land, our idolatries. And some of you may want to push the pause button and say, brother, but I'm, I'm not an idolater. You know how John writes this letter his first letter to these people that, I mean, they're Christians, right? He's telling them the difference between what a Christian is and a non-Christian. Somebody who lives in the light, somebody who is living in the darkness. And this is how we know the difference all the way through. And then at the very, very end, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Did John really think that they were going to bow down to these little stone or metal idols? An idol is anything that takes God's rightful place in your life. And some of us have spent our entire lives doing what we think we were put here to do, which is take care of our families and pad the comfort zones and make sure that we can provide. And sometimes God tells us that has become an idol. John says, keep yourselves from idols. It's separating and it's dividing. And sometimes our idol is the United States of America. I love the United States of America. I, I, love, I have a dark blue passport like the rest of you. I love the U.S. I tell people, if you don't like it, leave for a little while. You'll have a whole new appreciation. It's a wonderful country. The land of Walmart, we have everything that we need here. It's a great country. I wouldn't say anything against it. I am saying that sometimes it becomes an idol for some people when God says, it's time to go. And we have dreams. We pray, oh, I would love to go and, and do 
missions or share the gospel, but there's an old saying, to sail to new and exotic lands, you have to be willing to lose sight of the shore. God's call is commanding, and it is directing. We don't get to choose the places where we will live out our lives when they go against God's plan. Oftentimes, they coincide. How does that happen? What does Psalm 37, 4 say? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. When you can just say, Lord, all I want is all you want. I just, however my life can best glorify you, that's what I want, Lord. When, when your heartbeat becomes that way, you, all of a sudden you realize there's a desire in my heart. Where'd that desire came, come from? The Lord gave me that desire. Why did he give you that desire? Because he wants to give you that desire. So sometimes the very desire of your heart is his plan for your life. But when you realize that it's not, and the sacrifice seems so big, think about somebody who would be the Super Bowl superstar of his day in his land. Now, he was, he was not a football player. He played cricket. His name was C.T. Studd. I don't understand cricket. Maybe you do. No offense, but I've been in countries where that was all that was on TV, and I tried to watch it, tried to understand it. The best I could figure out is that people played so they wouldn't have to watch it. I couldn't get anything out of cricket. But he was really big at it. He was really famous. He was from a wealthy family and trained in medicine. He had his entire world ordered. He basically born with a silver spoon in his mouth and it only got better. But he believed he was to say goodbye to all of it and go to the field, first China and then Africa. And people said, brother, that is too great a sacrifice. God's not calling you to do that. And C.T. Studd said, if Jesus is God and he died for my sins, no sacrifice I could make would be too great. Can we all say that? Can we all resonate with that? Whenever I come to this part of the country, whenever I think about this part of the country, I think about one of my big heroes in missions, and all of you probably are aware, I'm thinking about Jim Elliott. And everybody knows the Jim Elliott quote that everybody likes to quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he can never lose. That sounds really good. That's a nice sound bite. But do we really believe that? Do we really believe that if Jesus is God and he died for our sin, no sacrifice we could make would be too great? And you say, but brother, my family needs me. I can't go to the field right now. I've got aging parents. I'm not making fun of that. I'm not making light of that. I ha we had aging pa parents. I am an aging parent. I understand what it's like to be separate from family. But... I've also seen, though, that people who walked away from their family in obedience to what the Lord had called them to do, this sounds really strange, but you know, in, in Mark 4, or in Mark 10, where Jesus um, says, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. What's Jesus saying? You may walk away from family here, but the Lord gives you more family. Our kids grew up calling people uncle and aunt that they only met a few years ago, and now my kids are still closer to their MK cousins than they are to their real 
cousins than they are to kids they grew up with here in the States. They're family, and they will ever be. They have family members, in that sense, all over the world. They're in each other's weddings. They name their kids after each other. They are a family that the Lord has provided. Yes, we need to pray for missionaries. Yes, there is great difficulty, but the Lord will bless them, and he will bless others through them now and later. So what's the application of all this today? Spurgeon said, notice the I wills of God in Scripture. God says, I will bless you. And he says, I will bless others through you. He said, there is no saint here who can out-believe God. God never out-promised himself yet. And you, many of you may have and use as a devotional book, Spurgeon's uh, little devotion faith checkbook. And basically what he's saying in that book is that all of the promises of the scripture are like a check made out to one of my children. But we can claim those promises, and God is faithful to his promises. But they say, pay to the order of my child. Abram's call was a lot like a missionary call today. Everyone needs to hear the gospel in a language they can understand, right? Hopefully we understand that. How is that ever going to happen? God told Abram, get up and go. I'm going to bless you and I'll bless others through you. There are maybe some people here tonight that you are the one that's going to take the gospel to a place where they currently don't have it. You say, brother, we've had the gospel for 2,000 years. We've been doing this a long time. You know, in the 1960s in Puebla, Mexico, the World Council of Churches had this big meeting. And they were all gathering, talking about best practices and who does what to who, different kinds of missions, efforts around the world. And somebody looked at a world map and said, wait a minute, we've finished the Great Commission. I mean, it's done, right? Because Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations. And look, in every one of those big pieces of real estate with the heavy black lines around them that we call Germany, Bolivia, every one of those nations has a church. We're we're through. It's Miller time. We've done everything that we've been called to do, and everybody was celebrating. And then in 1974, Billy Graham called a gathering of people in Lausanne, Switzerland. They were missionaries, missiologists, mission agency administrators, evangelists, pastors, everybody that cared about extending the kingdom. And at that gathering, this man came to the podium, and he said, folks, not only have we not finished the Great Commission, Really not even started well. Well, they thought he had lost his mind. He should have retired 10 years ago. People were writing ugly articles about this guy. What is he thinking about? We're already beginning to plan what post-Great Commission missions is going to look like. And this guy is saying we haven't even started well. But he reminded us that when Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. When he said, go and make disciples of all nations, what he said was go, and in the Greek, the Koine Greek, the original, he says, go and make disciples of pantata ethne. Panta is a word that means all, like the Pan-American Highway goes through all of the Americas, from Alaska down to Tierra de Fuego. Uh, or a pantheist is someone who believes that everything is God and God is everything. Pan. Panta is all. Ta is the definite article, the. And ethne, we translate nations. But you even hear our word ethnic in there, right? It means ethno-linguistic groups. 
There are 6,913 major languages in the world today. I have a little poster in my office that has quotation marks and a blank page and then quotation marks at the bottom. And at the foot of the page, it says, this is John 3.16 in over 3,000 languages of the world today. They don't have a single word written of the scriptures in their language because they don't have a single word in their language. It's not been reduced to writing yet. They desperately need to hear the gospel. Without the gospel, no one can be saved. You must hear the gospel and be born again. The problem is they all already have a religion. Every one of them. There's nobody sitting around in the world today with their arms crossed saying, oh, I wish someone would bring us a religion. They've got one. It's the one their mom and dad had that their grandparents had. Romans 1, 18 to 20. Psalm 19, 1 to 4. Basically teach us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Paul says, what can be known about God is plain to men because God has revealed it in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Everyone knows there's a creator. There's no such thing as an honest atheist. Now, they have so suppressed that truth that they've convinced themselves there is no God, but when it's just them in a dark room going to sleep, they know there is a creator. Paul says more than that. Romans 2, 14 and 15, he says, we have a conscience, we have God's law written on our hearts, and we have a mind that can either accuse or excuse ourselves. In other words, we can reason. When he says the law written on our hearts, he doesn't mean the Ten Commandments. He means that in every culture, mamas love their babies. We have things that are, we know that are right. God has given that to us. And you have a conscience. The first time you lied to your mom, nobody had to tell you that was wrong. You immediately felt guilty and dirty and wrong. And Paul says also we have this ability to reason. What he's doing, that's good. Oh, but now you should be ashamed. You should, how come I can do that? You can do that. Animals can't do that. We know there's a creator. We know that we've sinned against that creator. And even more, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity in the heart of man. We know there's something coming after this. So you either have reincarnation or you have some Muslim paradise or you have the happy hunting grounds, or you're going into the land of the ancestors, but everybody has some idea of, of a life beyond this life. And all of that mixes together to somehow reach out to the creator. They know their sin has, has offended, and they've created a religion, an effort to reestablish their relationship with the creator. But none of those religions save anybody. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Peter was preaching in Acts 4.12. He said, there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. The nations have religions. The nations are worshiping people, but not in ways that are salvific. They must hear the gospel, and thousands don't even have their language reduced to writing. The, what is the worst thing about being lost and what's even worse than just being lost is being worse than worse. What is that? To be lost and nobody's looking for you. If you were to spin the globe and when you see the U.S., stop it. Just the Americas, where we've lived for a long time, just the Americas, over two-thirds of our people groups are still unreached people groups. 
Over a third of them are not only unreached, they're unengaged. No one in the past couple of years has been trying to plant a church among them. And 85 of our groups have never even been contacted by somebody from the outside. And that's just here on the Americas. It gets worse the farther we go. They're not just lost. They're lost and nobody's currently looking for them. And a lot of our churches, thankfully not you, you're having a missions conference, but a lot of our churches get so bound up on what color to paint the handle on the lawnmower, they don't have time to think about the rest of the world that needs to hear the gospel. And sometimes we put ourselves to sleep at night saying, well, they're very religious people. I've seen the documentaries. They believe sincerely. They have faith in their system. But it's not a faith that saves. And sincerity doesn't save anybody. If I'm very thirsty right now and I genuinely believe that this is pure water and I were to drink this whole thing down, sincerely believing it's water, but all of you know it's really poison and it's such a powerful poison that one little drop would kill 10 grown men and I just drank the whole thing. Sincerely believing that it's pure water. Would my sincerity save me? No, I'd be sincerely dead, right? Because it, that's, my sincerity is empty. And that is the faith of many people around the world. What do they need? They need to hear the gospel message. How in the world is that going to happen? God calls people and he sends them out. And he calls others to send them out. Amy Carmichael said, the work of all the missionaries around the world is like a grain of sand. Everything that everybody's doing is like a grain of sand. And the need is like a pyramid. When you look in the scriptures, one of the things when you are practicing biblical hermeneutics, one of, the, one of the literary devices we see in the Bible is repetition, is to emphasize an idea. Because the Old and New Testament doesn't use italicized or bold font. There's no underlining words. There's no highlighters. Paul didn't have any highlighters. No exclamation points. The way that God really wants to emphasize an idea is he will repeat it. And if he really wants to turn the volume up on it, he repeats it three times. So of all the attributes we find of God, the one that he really repeats like that is holy, holy, holy. And the first reader or the first hearer, that grabbed his attention just like underlined italicized bold font would to you. And so that we don't miss it, he repeats it again. That's about as strong as you can get. A threefold repetition made twice and Revelation 4, 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But what if you had something that was repeated five times? Every one of the gospels and the book of Acts has a version of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Just like God called Abram, what did he tell him to do? Leave the old. Some people in here tonight, he's telling you, leave the old. It may not be leave the old country and go elsewhere, but it might be leave the old spending habits and reinvest your money in something that will have eternal value. Maybe leave behind attitudes, fears, sinful activities, and do what? Go by faith, to a place of obedience, to a place of location for some of us. And I will bless you with salvation, with healing, with joy, with peace, through you to the nations as they hear the truth of the gospel 
and they come to know the Lord. All the nations in Abram's day weren't automatically blessed, right? Because God had in his heart to bless all the nations. Abram had to get up and go. And through you, I will bless them. And they're not automatically blessed today. God has a plan, and every one of you have a part in that plan. We're going to unpack that more in our time that we have this weekend of what exactly that might look at, but look like. But let me just say, don't waste your life on you. It's not yours. You were bought with a price. And the truth is, night is coming when no man can work. And every one of us are going to turn around twice, and this life's going to be over. And we're going to be asking ourselves, how did I spend that glimpse of life that the Lord gave me? How might God want to use this church in missions? He's using you powerfully. You support a number of missionaries. You're here on a Friday night. There are a thousand, thousand other places you could be. I know that. I think it is a great stewardship of your time to be here to tell the Lord you are serious about what he's doing in the world. But I wonder if you're here because there's something else he wants to say. Nobody's here by accident. This church, we look at the what I think the first real missionary church was, church at Syria and Antioch. God said, go, make disciples of all the nations. Jesus gave them the Great Commission. And they said, yes, Lord. And then they said, no, Lord, with the rest of their lives. They didn't do it. They huddled up until there was a stoning of Stephen and everybody had to scatter and they regathered in Syria and Antioch. And they're in Syria and Antioch. They were so serious about serving the Lord. The Bible says that was where they were first called Christians. And Christian wasn't a compliment. It was a term of derision. But it stuck because it fit. It means little Christ. They were living like he wanted them. They were sharing the gospel with people that weren't temple Jews. They were beginning. You look at the list of the names that people were in that church. And there it was an international church. And it's no wonder to me that it was there that the Holy Spirit came down when the leadership was praying and fasting and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them to do. The rest of you guys are slackers. No, he didn't say that because they had a role to play. They were to send them out. Barnabas and Saul were to go, but the church was to send them. So what's your role? What's the role for this church? Maybe before we're through this weekend, somebody will stand up and say, God has called me to go. Or maybe he will say to the leadership here, these people are to go. But everybody has a role to play. If you're not to go, you are to sin. And if you're to go, you should go so seriously as if souls depended on it right now. And if you're just to sin, you're to sin so seriously as if souls depended on it right now. So as we close tonight, I just want us to think, if I could not live without Christ, can I go to sleep tonight knowing that there are people who are living without Christ, who are dying without Christ, and who are spending eternity without him. One-third of the population of this planet has never heard the gospel. They represent over 2 billion people in over half of the people groups of the world. And every day from that number, about 50,000 people die and go into a Christless eternity. 
And some of you will go home from this place and you will go to bed, you will put your head on your pillow and that number will begin to go through your head. 50,000 people before I go to sleep will have gone into a Christless eternity today. Because that happened yesterday and it happened the day before. And it will happen tomorrow and it will happen the day after tomorrow. People who are cut off without Christ, they don't know a missionary, they don't have a church, they don't have a Jesus film, they don't have a Bible. And we live in the most Christian blessed nation in history. And here you are hearing what the Lord would say in the Great Commission. And you'll try to go to sleep tonight and that will begin to weigh on you. And I will just say, that's how it starts. When it dawns on you that this night there are untold millions still untold. Is God calling you to go and share? That's what we want to answer in our time this weekend. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for your word and your call on our lives. Lord, I thank you that you have called these people here this night, not by accident, but for purpose. And perhaps some they're being called like Abram to get up and go. But all of us are called to rededicate our prayer life for the nations. All of us are called to rededicate our time and energy to the degree that you allow us to send forth missionaries who can and will and are called to go very clearly. Help us, Lord, to teach our young people that missions is a worthy investment of life. Help us, Lord, to invest with our church finances, with our family budgets into sharing the gospel around the world, seeing that the Bible is translating, translated and seeing that churches are established in all the churchless peoples. For your sake, for your glory, and for the extension of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.